Welcome to Murder Bucket, a true crime podcast where I talk about everything from murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and also weird stuff. If you never want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be helpful if you rated and left me a review. This spreads the word about Murder Bucket. Let's see what we're going to pull out of the bucket this week. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome back to another glorious Tuesday. Tonight, we will be concluding part two of the San Ysidro McDonald's Massacre. We're going to be discussing the immediate aftermath of when James was killed, everything that kind of happened a few days after that, a couple of interviews, going to be talking a little bit more about the documentary and about the memorial. And then we're going to have our true crime news corner tonight because I totally dropped the ball last week and didn't realize that last week's episode was the first Tuesday of May, and True Crime News Corner was supposed to be then. So you're getting it tonight. But first, as always, let's do our weekend slash week recap. Last week was good? Normal? Like, nothing kind of crazy happened? We went out Friday evening with a few of our friends to this place called Crab Town. Obviously, it's a seafood restaurant. And then the other half of the restaurant has like old school arcades. So we had an absolute blast hanging out and drinking and playing like Pac-Man and Street Fighter and racing cars and all those kinds of things. Saturday, my husband and I and our daughter went out to the mall to go pick up my Mother's Day present, with one of them, I should say. I asked for a new pair of Vans, so I got to go pick those out. And I just got the black, like, classic tie, the lace-up ones. And then we kind of just walked around a little bit. And then we ended up at another mall and went to go look for a, like a, kitchen appliance it's not really a kitchen appliance it's just like a a kitchen tool I guess it's a food mill I don't know if you know what that is but I make my own vegetable broth um I save all of the scraps from when we cook anything so like any vegetables that like the scraps that you should normally throw away like the ends of asparagus or zucchini or an onion peel or anything like that I save it And then I boil it down and I make vegetable broth. But I haven't really figured out a good tried and true method of extracting all of the juice from the scraps. So we tried a food mill. That seems to work okay. I tried it on a really small batch on Sunday and it seems to to work pretty well. Sunday was Mother's Day. We went to church. 
And then we came home and just relaxed. We hung out. We watched a few TV shows. We had lunch and then dinner and nothing too exciting there, which is really what I wanted. So then it was Monday and work was normal. And now you're here with me and it's Tuesday and we're going to get into the podcast. San Ysidro McDonald's Massacre, Part 2. As soon as SWAT sniper Chuck fired the fatal shot, he relayed the responding officers that James was dead and that he would remain focused on him. In a news report video saved on YouTube, they stated that SWAT sniper Chuck yelled into his walkie, He's down! He's down! The suspect is down! Here is the audio clip from said news report. News 8's Carlos Amesco was among the first reporters on the scene. He's been providing live reports for the past five and one half hours. We go to him now for his report on what happened. Carlos? Marty, as we arrived shortly after the incident began, the scene was one of absolute confusion. Shots were ringing out. The nightmare was unfolding. Make sure you approach from the south, and the CP is at 300 west. The shooting suspect is inside the McDonald's. He is contained, moving around, and there's still shots being fired. He entered the facility, heavily armed, immediately started shooting everybody. And uh, uh, the customers uh, that were inside the uh, restaurant uh, had absolutely no chance to escape. Oh, These images are more of war than of a small fast food restaurant in San Isidro. Yet it was a local man dressed in battle fatigues who declared, I have killed a thousand, I'm going to kill a thousand more. 41-year-old James Huberty reportedly walked into the restaurant carrying a semi-automatic rifle and two other weapons, enough ammunition to last two hours. Witnesses inside said he fired wildly into the unsuspecting crowd, gathered for a quick evening meal. He fired through windows, hitting people in the street. He fired at men, women, children, and babies. One officer said it looked like a mass execution. Police hearing the calls coming across the radio were confused, not sure how to approach such a dangerous situation. It was all happening so fast. The SWAT team was called in to try and surround the building. Meanwhile, people who escaped, their bodies soaked with blood, were being taken care of by frantic emergency medical crews. The death toll started at 6, then 10, 20, and climbing. By 4.15, a virtual army of police and rescue personnel had crowded the main street through this border town. Suddenly, a shot was fired. Police radio screamed, he's down, he's down, the suspect's down. James Huberty had fallen to a SWAT sharpshooter's bullet. One single bullet killed the man who had apparently systematically fired, loaded, and reloaded his weapon to kill all those people. It all happened in about an hour. No one can explain why. Why anyone would take so many innocent lives. James Huberty didn't kill his thousand. He killed enough to shake a whole country and make this small town wonder if its streets will ever be the same. James was inside the McDonald's shooting from start to finish for 77 minutes before he was killed. During that time, he managed to fire around 257 times. According to several articles, there were only 10 people inside that restaurant that were able to escape uninjured. When police entered the building, there were bullets, bodies, and blood everywhere. A police officer stood over James's body to be certain he was dead. 
He looked over and saw a young girl close by and asked her if the man he was guarding was a suspect, and she nodded yes. Everyone that could walk or had help walking was escorted out of the building and sent to the surrounding parking lots to seek help. Ambulances and paramedics started arriving on scene in droves to assist wherever they could. In the documentary 77 Minutes, Detective Rick Carlson remarks how the aftermath became chaotic because everyone that had come outside weren't coming straight to the police. Instead, they were looking for their loved ones. Police were still concerned that there could be another suspect, that it could be one of those people coming outside, so they had to stay on guard. Officer R.L. Harrison recalls surveying the scene and shuddering. I haven't seen anything like this since I was in Vietnam, and I hope I never see it again. The employees who had hidden in the closet downstairs didn't realize that the police had arrived and that James was dead because of an alarm that was blaring near them. While the police were searching the building for more people, they went downstairs and opened the closet door. One of the employees recalls that as soon as the door was opened, Police pointed their guns at everyone inside and checked to see who everyone was. Then they were all escorted out. In last week's episode, I mentioned how Keith Thomas was shielded by his friend's father, Ronald Herrera, and his friend Mateo was shielded by his friend's mother, Blythe Herrera. When the shooting was over, Keith leaned over to Mateo to check on him. He noticed that he was hunched over so he grabbed his leg and attempted to wake him up. He says it didn't register at first that his friend was dead because of the shock that he was in. Alstafo, Marcella, and Carlita, who were shot outside, were taken to three separate hospitals. For some time, Marcella did not know where her daughter was and didn't know if she was dead or alive. During the massacre, Carlita was handed off to Officer Steve Pernicano, Lucia Valesco rode with Officer Pernicano to the hospital while helping administer first aid. Maricela and her daughter were separated for nearly two weeks until they were reunited. Maricela was told by doctors that it was a miracle her daughter survived because of her extensive injuries. In the documentary, Maricela states that because her daughter survived, she does not hate James Hubbardy. 32 years later, a news station aired a story of Carlita just before the documentary came out. Here is a short clip from that report. She was just four months old when a man with a gun and a mission to kill shot her in the head. But little baby Carla survived that horrific McDonald's massacre where 21 others died. And tonight, many years later, she's back here in San Diego to share her story, soon to be told in a documentary. And our 10 News anchor, Aitika Milana, shows us the series of events that saved baby Carla. Carla Felix was just an infant, and she doesn't remember that day, but she carries the horror with her every day. My mom was holding me uh, when we got out of the car. Was when he shot us. 1984, Carla Felix and her parents had just pulled into the McDonald's in San Ysidro. Who thinks that you're going to go to McDonald's and get shot? James Huberty, 41, and a father himself, shot everyone in sight even this four-month-old baby. The bullet that was supposed to hit my heart 
hit her hand. But the bullets kept coming. Her mother shot in the eye. My mom and I had the same scar in our stomach. And then I have a few in my back. I have half a bullet still in my head. Carla's father pushed through his injury, grabbed his baby, and handed her to a complete stranger. The stranger then handed it to a policeman, and they both rushed it to the hospital. This is a picture of a nurse caring for baby Carla. Charlie Min is making a documentary about that horrific day. It's called 77 Minutes. Min says that's how long it took for the SWAT team to get there and kill Huberty. The victims need a voice. On the anniversary, every July 18th, um, yeah, I, I, I go back and I, I look at the videos. And it's hard to believe I was involved. No memory of what happened to her, but the scars still with her emotionally and physically. I do believe I'm a miracle child, <laughs> like four, four months old to get shot and survive. Before any of the bodies were removed from the scene, a police film crew took video. They walked around identifying each victim and gave a verbal report of their wounds, their age, what they were wearing, and their ethnicity. This can be seen in the documentary. An article that was printed in the La Prensa newspaper claimed to have inside knowledge that keys to several SWAT vehicles were missing, which made the SWAT team take longer to arrive on scene. Former SWAT commander Jerry Saunders states that the author of the article, Daniel Munoz, made it up because he had some tension with Jerry at one time. He also claims that many of the articles printed in the newspaper are not based on facts, but rather opinion and emotion. One day after the massacre, news reporters visited James's father in Mount Eaton, Ohio. Their hope was to gain as much information as they could about his son. During his interview, he talked about his son's childhood and their religious background. He stated, Yesterday was the worst day of my life. I feel so sorry for those people. And then he began to weep. The McDonald's Corporation temporarily suspended all television and radio ads for several days following the massacre. Rival fast food chain Burger King also temporarily suspended all forms of advertising in an act of solidarity. Because of how many people had been killed during the massacre, local funeral homes held wakes for each victim at the San Ysidro Civic Center. Mount Carmel Church held back-to-back -back funeral masses in order for the dead to be buried in a timely manner. James's two daughters and his wife were interviewed in October of 1984 by the San Diego Union. Zelia states that she will partly remember her father as a very nice person, loving, gentle, and kind. Another part of her will remember him as a violent person. Etna is quoted saying, It's rather a difficult thing to forget. I always figured there was a good possibility of him killing me one day. He did point a gun at me once. I didn't become afraid for the girls until after February when he became angry with Zelia. She went flying into her bedroom with an Uzi pointed at her. Zelia states, that she misses their walks, bike rides, and shopping trips together. She is quoted in the same article saying, I'm different from other children because they'll never know what I saw. I thought I was in a nightmare, but I knew it was reality. To shoot people, 
little babies, you know, that would be quite ill. Zelia and her mother drove past the restaurant shortly after the incident happened to pick up her sister. They could see the dead and the wounded. At the time that the article was printed, Etna and her girls lived four miles from where the massacre took place, and her girls attended school under assumed names. On July 25, 1984, a McDonald's spokesman stated that they would not be reopening the restaurant. Several workers had arrived before dawn and took down the distinctive golden arches. In an article in the WashingtonPost.com, Andrea Scorepa, a San Ysidro community leader, is quoted saying, In our culture, the grieving stage of death is much more ritualized. In our kind of extended family culture, it becomes a family feeling of what's been done has been done to all of us. McDonald's president, Mike Quinlan, stated, We are considering the sentiments of the community. Some people wanted us to reopen, and some people opposed it. The massacre prompted the city of San Diego to assess the tactical methods by how they responded to incidents of this nature. The police department increased the training for special units and purchased more powerful firearms in order to better equip law enforcement to respond to scenarios of this magnitude. On August 2nd, San Diego Police Chief William Callander held a press conference to disclose the results of the inquiry into their response to the massacre. The inquiry found that although the SWAT team was delayed by traffic, the police acted appropriately in their method of response. He stated that the suggestion for the police to storm the restaurant would have been ludicrous and added that the officers were unable to obtain a clear view of the gunmen because when the windows were shot, it created a spider-webbed pattern making visibility in direct sunlight almost impossible. He finished the conference by stating, I believe the operation was handled the way it should have been handled. He was then questioned in regards to James's motive and if he knew why he did it. He stated that there was no notion of racial motive and simply stated that he didn't like anyone. McDonald's then made the decision to demolish the building on September 26th. After it was demolished, the grounds were then donated to the city with the stipulation that no restaurant could be constructed there again. Etna was then interviewed in an article on APNews.com a year after the massacre. She and her daughters have moved twice since then and have been enrolled in several different schools. The attention from the media, occasional death threats, and classmate taunts toward her daughters are constant reminders of her husband's shooting spree. She did state that she misses her husband despite what he did. She defended her husband as a hard-working man who was down on his luck and snapped. Regarding whether she was worried about residents harboring hostile feelings toward her, she is quoted saying, I really don't know what they think, and I really don't care. I have a very simple philosophy. People live because they don't die, and some days I say they live because they're not lucky enough to die. Etna Hubbardy filed a lawsuit against McDonald's and James's former employer, Babcock and Wilcox, in July of 1986. She believed that her husband's murder spree was triggered by a combination of a poor diet 
and him working around highly poisonous metals without adequate protection over the course of many years. She was seeking $5 million in damages. The lawsuit, however, was dismissed in 1987. Also in 1987, several family members of those killed, as well as several survivors, filed a lawsuit against McDonald's and the San Diego Police Department. They believed that because McDonald's failed to provide security at this particular restaurant, they were at fault for the massacre. The lawsuit was then dismissed by the judge. Everyone then attempted to appeal the ruling in the Court of Appeals. The court upheld the lower court's findings. In an article in LATimes.com, Justice Don Work is quoted saying, Under the circumstances here, it cannot be reasonably urged that had McDonald's provided an unarmed uniformed licensed security guard, as did a nearby jack-in-the-box restaurant, that the massacre would have been prevented or its extent diminished. The record defies such a conclusion. Rather, it paints a portrait of fermented, mentally unbalanced man bent on murder and self-destruction, who viewed the nearby McDonald's restaurant with his binoculars from his apartment, kissed his wife goodbye, and stated that he was going hunting for humans. The court rejected the same claims against the San Diego Police Department. McDonald's later announced a commitment to donate $1 million to a survivor's fund. The widow of McDonald's founder Ray Kroc also added a personal contribution of $100,000 to assist with burial costs, financial aid for relatives of the deceased, and counseling for survivors. Etna Hubbardy received the first payout from this fund amidst impromptu protests from several donors and nearby residents. The city of San Diego struggled with trying to come up with a plan to convert the site into either a memorial park or a shrine for several years. It wasn't until the land was sold in February of 1988 to Southwestern College for $136,000. In the settlement documents, there was an agreement that a 300-square-foot area in front of the campus had to be set aside as a permanent memorial for the 21 victims. The memorial was unveiled in 1990. It consists of 21 hexagonal white marble pillars ranging from 1 foot to 6 feet in height, each bearing the name of a victim. Former Southwestern College student Roberto Valdez designed the memorial. He is quoted in an article saying, The 21 hexagons represent each person that died, and they are different heights, representing the variety of ages and races of the people involved in the massacre. They are bonded together in the hopes that the community, in a tragedy like this, will stick together like they did. Zelia had her first interview in more than 30 years with Vocative in 2015. She is quoted in the article saying, I had a perfect view of it. I saw the car there. I saw everything. I saw people I knew who I went to school with. I wasn't thinking anything that time except better them than me. I know that's a horrible thing to say, but as a 12-year-old, that's the sort of thing you think of. But if I could go back in time, I probably would have killed my father before any of this would have occurred. 
There's not a day that goes by that I don't think of it or relive it. Sometimes just a sound or the temperature will bring the memory back. I see it all over again. Zelia gave this interview to give advice to the daughter of the San Bernardino terrorists. She fears that their daughter will face the same backlash that she, her sister, and her mother did. She states, People do not receive the same kind of community support that they would if a family member had died in a car crash or had a heart attack. The families often become demonized. This little girl whose parents did this act, she is at such a wonderful age since she is so young and won't remember any of it. I would tell that little girl, you have a choice to make. You can either feel sorry for yourself or you can say F it and move on. You're not like them. Every year on the anniversary of the massacre, a memorial is held at the site where the shooting occurred. At the memorial in 2001, Gloria Sales, a resident who helped turn the site into the memorial, remembers being saddened when she learned the restaurant was planning on reopening. She knew one of the boys who died. She was also one of the ones leading a protest and passed out a petition to turn the site into a memorial rather than another restaurant. She states she was one of the ones who convinced the late Joan Croc to donate the land. And with that, we will end here. I know it may seem a little difficult, but I would encourage you to watch the documentary 77 Minutes. There is a lot of interviews with victims, survivors, police, a gentleman who was one of the shooting victims who ended up becoming a police officer later in life. Like I said, there is just so much more information that is shared in this documentary, so much more emotion that is shared that I just can't portray in the two-part episodes that we did. So please watch it, have tissues nearby, if you need to pause it and watch it over the course of a few days, that's fine. I had to rewatch it for last week and tonight's episode. And let me tell you, no matter how many times you watch this, it is still so heart-wrenching. And we are going to conclude tonight's episode with our True Crime News Corner. Simaj Short, an inmate in Bertie Correctional Institute in Windsor, North Carolina, was attacked in a housing area of the prison around 2.14 p.m. on April 1st. First responders attempted to save his life but were unable. He was pronounced dead at 2.37 p.m. Simaj was serving a 31-year sentence for second-degree murder and the shooting death of a two-year-old back in 2014. Mawa Dumbia of Newark, New Jersey, was last seen alive on October 7, 2016. Her remains were found on April 19, 2019, and she was positively identified in November of 2021. Khalil Wheeler Weaver of Orange, New Jersey, was sentenced in the murders of Robin West, Joanne Brown, and Sarah Butler in December of 2021, just one month after Mawa's body was identified. Khalil was charged with the murder of Mawa on April 4th. A Manhattan jury found rapper Kid Creole guilty of manslaughter on April 7th in connection with the 2017 fatal stabbing 
of a homeless man on the streets. His sentencing is scheduled for May. Romance author Nancy Crampton Brophy, who was charged in the 2018 fatal shooting of her husband, had her murder trial begin on April 5th. The prosecutor believes that Nancy's motive to kill her husband was a $1.4 million insurance policy. In 2011, Nancy wrote a blog post titled, How to Murder Your Husband. Eddie Dezine, the actor who played nerdy teen Eugene Felskine in Greece, was arrested on April 8th after police say he made an unwanted entry into a nursing facility and refused to leave the property when told to do so. He has been charged with fourth-degree burglary, two counts of trespassing, and one count of disturbing the peace. New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin was indicted on April 12th on charges including bribery and related offenses in connection with his alleged participation in a scheme to obtain campaign contributions in exchange for securing a state grant. Ten people were shot while riding a subway in Brooklyn, New York on April 12th. Police identified the shooter as 62-year-old Frank James. As the end train was between stations at 59th Street and 36th Street, seated in the second car in the rear corner was a dark-skinned male. As the train pulled into the station, witnesses say the man opened up two smoke grenades, brandished a Glock 9mm handgun, and then he fired that weapon at least 33 times. Three years after he was arrested and charged with sexually groping several women in various nightclubs and restaurants, in 2018 and 2019, Cuba Gooding Jr. has pleaded guilty on April 13th during a courtroom appearance. 16-year-old Connor Jack Oswald, an autistic teenager who went missing in California in 2019, was found in Utah on April 14th. Summit County Sheriff's Office stated receiving reports of a man pushing around a shopping cart. They were concerned because he had been sleeping in front of the store. When officers approached him, they asked if he wanted to sit in their car to warm up. Even though Connor Jack wouldn't tell the officers his name, he did allow them to scan his fingerprint. It showed a warrant out in Nevada. The officers combed through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children database. His name and picture came up as missing from 2019. He has since been reunited with his family. Seven Fort Bragg soldiers who last saw a colleague alive before his severed head was found along a North Carolina shoreline in 2020, are now facing court-martials this summer on charges of conspiracy and other crimes. The New Jersey Catholic Diocese has agreed to pay $87.5 million to settle claims involving clergy sex abuse, with some 300 alleged victims in one of the largest cash settlements involving the Catholic Church in the U.S. On April 22nd, Portuguese authorities stated that they have a formal suspect in the disappearance of three-year-old Madeline McCain. Madeline disappeared while on vacation in Portugal in May of 2007. On April 25th, Fairfax, Virginia police made an arrest in the case of a rapist who posed as a radio DJ. In 1987, William Clark posed as a radio DJ and lured a 14-year-old girl out of her home by stating she won a free trip to Hawaii. He then raped her. Texas court grants a stay of execution for Melissa Lucio on April 25th. 
Her case is also being sent back to court to review new evidence. Melissa was convicted of capital murder after her two-year-old daughter, Mariah, was found to have scattered bruises in various stages of healing, as well as injuries to her head and contusions of the kidneys, lungs, and spinal cord in 2007. And finally, on April 28th, a Dallas County jury found suspected serial killer Billy Chamurmur guilty of capital murder. He is said to have preyed on dozens of elderly women in the Dallas and Colin County areas. He will spend the rest of his life in prison and could face additional trials. That concludes our True Crime News Corner, but please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Death by Champagne podcast. Have a great evening. Hey listeners, if you're tuning into this show, one, you have good taste, and two, you might enjoy another show that we host called Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night. I'm Mackenzie. And I'm Olivia. We have topics in all realms. From the reality of true crime to the depths of the occult, we have dozens of episodes to binge that range from hair-raising scares to infuriating miscarriages of justice. We've covered everything from the origins of Satan to the crimes of an unidentified serial killer in our hometown of St. Louis. Other episodes include tales of unsolved mysteries, murder investigations, disappearances, cold cases, hauntings, folklore, and people in history that are stranger than fiction. In Season 3, you can join us for a true crime book club, giving in-depth coverage on cases living in the darkest corners of our bookshelves. Our first multi-part series is on the crimes of Gary Ridgway, focusing on his family, victims, and survivors. So grab your cat keychain, surround yourself in a salt circle, lock your doors, and unlock that phone. Hail Satan, and pop some bottles. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.